Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call Chris Brewer at Affordable Heat and Air, 317-656-7945. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kurt Cavan and Kevin Lee on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. And the green flag flies and they roar into turn number three. They're two, three wide, and it's Alex Pallone that will lead the field. Ramon Grosjean's got some advantage. Marcus Erickson, the big mover. He nearly has contact with Joseph Newgarden. Joseph Newgarden got contact with Scott Dixon, and we have one of the cars in the tire barrier. That's Callum Eilat. So Eilat's done, but they're green after that. And the green flag flies. The restart. Will Power taking a look to both sides of Alex Pillow. And Will Power will pop to the outside of Alex Pillow. Will not be able to make the best, but now swings to the inside. What a move for Will Power on those softer green tires. We'll get around Alex Pillow. Dixon trying to get around his teammate as well. So the question becomes, can Scott Dixon do what Will Power did? Answer for now is no. Power starts to check out just a little bit. Then it's Alex Pillow followed by Scott Dixon, then Felix Rosenquist. But here comes Alex Pillow, Michael. Great run out of turn number two for Alex Pillow. He's closed within a car length. He'll look to the inside. Now he'll pop to the outside. This is the battle for the lead. Will Power will lock him up, and Alex Pillow will dive underneath. Alex Pillow will go to the lead over Will Power. And so Alex Pillow, who has that rear end step out just a little bit once he makes that pass, now hopes that his teammate Scott Dixon will have clear sights on him because Dixon, who's running in third, He's going to try to get around Will Power. Not able to do so in turn number five. All of this happening behind the leader, Alex Pillow. Will Power pops to the outside of Alex Pillow. They'll drag race down Jefferson Avenue. Power will break a little bit later than Pillow. Still side by side. The over-under as Scott Dixon makes contact with Will Power. Dixon will lose his spot to Alexander Rossi. Will Power slows, and we'll see Felix Rosenquist go around as well. And the popularity of the legend continues to grow. The advanced auto parts checkered flag is in the air, and Alex Below is going to go to victory lane. He wins the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix presented by Lear. Will Power grabs the second spot. Felix Rosenquist third. Scott Dixon fourth. And Alexander Rossi completes the top five. Oh, it was it was very busy. Uh, we knew it was going to be busy. Um, it's it's always street course racing, and it's always IndyCar. So um, super happy to be back here in Victory Lane, uh, the first time with the Ridge Line Lubricants car. So we had everything we needed today. All the power uh, we were able to hit, uh, the fuel mileage we needed to get the strategy right. And honestly, it was a ton of fun to race here uh, at the new Detroit track. Um, so yeah, happy that we got it safe and back on Victory Lane. Welcome to Trackside, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan in Indianapolis. I'm Kevin Lee. Kurt Cavan is here. Eddie Garrison is there in our studios on Monument Circle. Highlights courtesy of IndyCar Radio of the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix, the inaugural event on the downtown streets. Is it inaugural if they've been there sort of before? It was a long time ago. And there wasn't much of the track that was in the same footprint, but it was in the general neighborhood, and it was back, it was fun, it was eventful, 
and not quite as much of a train wreck as some people thought it was going to be. Alex Pillow has taken a pretty good handle on the championship still early in the season. Uh, we'll get into that and much more. Your Twitter questions, comments are welcome at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. Hello, Kurt. Hello, Kevin. Or as I must say, the rapper's best friend. Uh, that's not the highlight of the show. I thought we were supposed to lead with this great interview with uh, with your rapper friend. I have one primary question because everybody Eddie listens decides to the show. what leads. Eddie decides what leads. Maybe it'll come back out of a break later on. So my question, I just have to get this out fast and early. Did you recognize him or did somebody say who this who this was? See, you talked about going to see your guy, Brian Adams, and I said, that's not really my guy. Flavor Flav would be more my guy. Yes, I knew who he was. So, I'm from the Ben Davis area. I'm not from Kokomo or <laughs> Franklin or other parts. I grew up in a diverse background, and I listened to Public Enemy as a kid. Now, I can't tell you what Flavor Flav has been doing since about 1992, but I knew what he was doing in the late 80s. And uh, we, uh, it, it was a, a bit interesting how that all came together. And it was kind of cool that we were the first to, to basically spot him. So I, I'll admit, I was standing right below him in the shade, right below the grandstands there, where I can still see pit lane. And I'm literally three steps from needing to go do something. This was during qualifying on Saturday afternoon. And in my headset, uh, I'm told... Hey, somebody thinks that that's Flavor Flav up there in in the suite, and it actually was um, the fellow holding my my jerk cam, the the portable monitor, uh, who looked up and spotted him. And so I went out and looked, and I said, "Yeah, I, I think that might be him." But let's go double check. And we started kind of asking around, and and then it's, well, do we want to do this? And we all kind of debated amongst ourselves because, you know, you never know. But then we eventually thought, because like I said, I'm not aware of what he's been doing since about 1992. Um, so we decided, you know what? It's Peacock. Let's have fun. We have time to do something like that, especially between rounds and qualifying. So then it was going to be up to me to do the pre-interview and decide – you know, because sometimes you get someone at an event that is really not ready to be on a broadcast, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For one reason or, or another. So I went up, introduced myself. He was highly friendly. And I basically did the pre-interview chat for a couple of minutes and thought, you know what? He's quite coherent. I think it's going to be a fun interview. Let's give it a go. And we did. And he, he asked me my name and I thought, well, he's just being polite. And then he rolls in with uh, my own personal rap uh, or rhyme or whatever you want to call it. And I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that. And I was encouraged. We interviewed him during the broadcast uh, on NBC because it was such a hit. And, and, and by the way, I think I'm happy now that I've gone viral for something other than interviewing James Hinchcliffe after he... Um, after he peed himself in the race car. That was probably my other most notable moment from a rain delay five or six years ago at Barber. So now I've got something that that's uh, maybe a little more fun that, that trumped that. But we did it again during the race, and, and I was told to encourage him to 
do another song for me. But I, I think, you know, the sequels are never as good. So I didn't want to go down that path. And we just had fun. And those are the kind of celebrity guests you like to have at races, not the ones that decline interviews, you know, that that take your VIP treatment and then say, I'm not talking to the media today. I'm just here to watch the race. Well, you're not doing us a whole lot of good. Uh, Flavor Flav. And and by the way, I was told that he reached out and said, I'm going to be in Detroit. Uh, I want to come to this race. That it was not someone from Penske Entertainment saying, hey, will you come? It was Flavor Flav saying, I'm going to be there. Can you hook me up? And now they are actually considering making him the Grand Marshal next year because he was on the whole time. And that's what I told him after we finished. I said, you're a great sport because you're making everybody that you meet feel really special. Not everybody can do that. If I must ask, and or if I may ask, uh, what is the pre-introduction meeting sound like or the, the interview that you do? I know you're trying to make sure that he's coherent and receptive to the moment. Do you just say, well, I mean, you have a television camera there and you have a microphone and a shirt. So he obviously knows what NBC is. But how did you broach that subject? So I, I actually saw him from below. So he's on the second story of those chalets. Um that is sort of a suite and a grandstand all rolled into one. And he's really only 15, 20 feet above me. So it's pretty easy to spot him because on Saturday it wasn't very crowded and he's down there in the front row. And I, I look up at him and he, he's, you know, we, I have a little posse with me, so I'm hard to uh, not notice either. And I look up and we make eye contact and I point to my microphone and say, hey, can we come up? And he's like, yeah, come on up. So he knew what we were there for. And then I just first I said, uh, I said, forgive me. Are you still a part of Public Enemy? Does Public Enemy still exist? Because I, again, am out of the loop. And he said, yeah. And then now that I've done a little research, it looks like they're doing a reunion tour somewhere in the near future, which, again, Brilliant marketing on his part, because a lot of people that weren't aware of what he was doing. Now, I, I also am told he was on a reality show that was probably a big deal, but that's not my world. I don't see reality shows. So he's not been out of the public eye for the last 30 years, but he has been out of my eye. But uh, he's, you know, at least been in front of a million people on NBC and many, many more social media uh, imprints over the last few days. So well done by Flavor Flav. But that's how I started with. Uh, so if we we do this, uh, what's the status of Public Enemy? How do I introduce you? And then just chatted and ask him, you know, a couple of questions. Have you ever been to an IndyCar race? So I knew that coming in. And he said, No, but I love racing. I love motorsport. This is a lot of fun. And I said, All right, that's enough. So <laughs> that's peacock worthy. NBC might have been a longer conversation. Yeah. The interesting thing to me, not only that Will Power was so stoked about it and that Tim Sindrick, uh, you know, it was in his wheelhouse. And then I love the fact that Bud Denker said, what's with the clock around his neck? Why is he wearing a clock? And <laughs> and then I had to do some digging. And of course, I didn't I, I know Public Enemy. I didn't know Flavor Flav, I must admit. Uh, you're right. I, coming from, you know, kind of a eight to 10 year period before you. Uh, so I didn't have the same background to work from that, that you, I wouldn't have had that day had you uh, handed me the microphone. So anyway, uh, 
it was it was good fun on all all fronts and he was a good sport and the fact that that Will is so excited about it still I mean Will talks about it like you know you've made me a hero back in Australia and that was my first thought as we we finished and we're talking with uh, our, our bosses about all right what do we do with this and I, I said <laughs> we need to get him hooked up with Will Power but so so first of all he he told me he wanted to meet Mario. So I went down to Andretti to find out if Mario was here. And unfortunately, he was not. But they said, hey, if he wants to hang out with Michael on the grid, you know, whatever, we'll we'll make it happen. That's why I tagged Mario in the tweet, just in case Mario was thinking about coming. Uh, he might be up for that as well. And he asked about AJ. And I said, you know, unfortunately, AJ's not here this weekend. Uh, and, and then I said, you know, I know we were thinking which of our drivers – would enjoy this the most. And I said, well, it's got to be Will. Will likes rap music. Uh, I guarantee you he would get a kick out of this. And, and indeed he did. And then when I, I went back Sunday, an hour or so before the race, I usually just try to find out where the drivers are going to be to get some intel. And they were loading them on trucks behind the paddock back there and went back and uh, was looking f for people and actually ran into Liz Power, who I did not see at all in the month of May. So it was it was great to to say hi to Liz and, you know, happy to see her back at the track after the health issues that she had de dealt with in January. And I was chatting with Liz and I didn't even notice that uh, Flavor Flav was over there, you know, continuing the conversation with Will and was getting ready to ride around on the back of the, the pickup truck with Will Power. So uh, they were there taking pictures and so forth. And you know, I chatted with him just a second again and said, I'm probably coming back for you again during the race, so be ready. He said, okay. Uh, so that was good. And then as I walked through and saw drivers for the first time that day, multiple drivers stopped me and said how cool that was. And then I got to hang out with Flavor Flav. So there you go. There you go. I'm, so, I'm, I'm big you, with the crew now. Did you take Flavor Flav to the driver introduction area, or did he just happen to be there through other sources? Uh, so he had met Will and others. I saw social media with him in the McLaren tent as well from Saturday. And I, and I guess it wasn't on TV, but maybe it was on radio because someone uh, posted a quote and ta uh, tagged me on Twitter on it. And Will's quote was from Saturday. Uh, I saw Kevin Lee talking to Flavor Flav, and I, I told Cindric, you've got to hook me up with him or something along those lines. But he saw our social media post that first NBC reposted, and then it got picked up by many other places. So he had already met him on Saturday, and I'm sure at that point, Will said, hey, you're welcome to come around with me on driver introductions the next day. And he had the Will Power shirt, which I'm told he just went out and purchased. It wasn't handed to him by Power or anyone else. So he was into it, and, and I was up there and, uh, when I went up to do the interview during the race. We weren't sure how we were going to fit that in, and unfortunately for Pato Award and fortunately for the timing, uh, almost as soon as I got up there, Pato crashed, which we were watching. He was intently watching the race, and we you know, could see that. That was in turn nine on the front straightaway there. So he was, he was into the race. I don't yeah, know that's... if he was watching timing and scoring on his phone, like Townsend said, uh, but I'll have to check to see if he got the IndyCar app. And and he well, may I'm be coming to Savannah's graduation party this weekend, too. So you never know. I'm Savannah asked I'm me to sure. invite him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he might have been game to do it if I really would have pressed him a little harder. 
Hey, the the funniest story uh, that I had at Kentucky Speedway uh, back in the day. I'm I'm sitting around in pre race, and it was probably you know an hour before the race, and I'm sitting having a little sandwich before the race, and there's a couple young kids sitting there, and I got home, uh, you know, the next day, and oh, how'd you do? Yeah, I met these really nice nice kids. I guess they sang the national anthem. I don't, their names like Nick and Joe and and my daughter, who's about ten at the time, realized I was talking about the Jonas Brothers. And yep. yeah, you've met the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I'm I'm sure it uh, Savannah. Although Savannah may uh, I don't know that she knows a whole lot of uh, public enemy, she, but she knew who he was probably because he was on a reality show at some point. Oh, I see. Well, I know that's not the 15 minutes we intended to start the show with, but it might have been, you know, the most uh, unique for the moment. And I'm glad everybody got a chance. And, and you're right. He was very interested in this race. You could see it the way he turned and looked for cars. And he he was up on the up on the wheel, if you will. And, you know, that's good to see. We see a, lo- a lot of celebrities come in and it's an I don't want to say it's an appearance for them because that's not fair. They're, they are enjoying themselves, but they're not into the event. You know, they're into the spectacle of the event, maybe not so much the race itself. And and it was clear that uh, that I started to say, uh, let's call him something. He has a name. I don't know his real name, but uh, Flavor Flav was clearly into the race, which was you know, to some degree unique and and certainly encouraging for those of us that just want others to like the sport as much as we do. Yeah, we probably shouldn't have started with this, but you know what? Up until race time, um, it, it, it likely was the most talked about moment of the weekend. Uh, now, luckily, we have more to talk about because the race was eventful and... You know, you got a, a sense of it from reading some of the comments, uh, and, and some were not pleased with how things were going. The general feeling was, is this is going to be Nashville 2.0, and it's going to be, um, well, use whatever word you want with uh, that, that precedes show. And it, it wasn't. It was fairly good. It Yes, was a bit chaotic, and I think you'll get a different opinion from some other people that had misfortune strike them, and in some cases that could be attributed to the extremely bumper nature of the track and the really tight confines and the unique pit exit and everything else. But I'll be honest, I and I think most everyone else, because I chatted with several people after the race, and the general consensus was, oh, it went a lot better than I thought. Okay, we can make something of this. So I think the the thing that that was, you know, the only thing that's disappointing at it from my standpoint, because I think they can fix, you know, the bumpiness approaching turn three. Uh, as as a street course goes, that's just part of the event. I think they can make some. The drivers will make some adjustments in how they they handle things. I think a lot more of them will go into a very low downforce approach so that they can get a good runoff uh turn two and then down that seven tenths of a mile straight away the thing that was unfortunate from my standpoint is i really believe detroit downtown detroit is a is a beautiful place along the river it has it has all the makings that that belle isle does from a scenery standpoint if you look away from you know the island itself or away from the circuit itself 
I'm just disappointed that that the camera angles don't show how pretty that is. Um, I think that's something that 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 everyone will look at, or or some will look at for next year. Uh, I, I'd like it to to show how pretty that that area of downtown is, and Jefferson Street open to all the public. You know, from a from if you just take the television broadcast, you couldn't get a sense for how many people were there, and I. And I hope next year it sh- it reflects those things because it's a pretty place. It's on the river. The green space is is present across you know uh, across the area, and there were a lot of people there. But it, I don't think it showed that on television the way it might have. There were a lot of shots when we were at Belle Isle that you could see the river, that you could see the you know, just how pretty downtown Detroit is. And and that would be my hope for next year. It's just one of those things you don't, you don't know till you start, you got to have the first event first. Uh, but, but that would be something I think I would like them to, to look, look toward next year. And I, I know this, that is always a priority to try to present it well. And they spent a lot of time and a lot of trips deciding where things go. And I think you're right that, you know, until you do it, you don't fully know, what the imprint is going to be. I don't know that there's a lot of green in that area. Um, I think it's going to be challenging to really pretty it up, but I think they can. And there's probably some decoration that you can do uh, now that you've seen what it looked like on television to be able to present it. It's, it's not a massive crowd. And that's one of the great things about street races. You fill it up as you sell tickets. I think i don't know this but i think maybe they could add more grandstands and they all look full and i know that they were all sold so not only did people take the tickets and buy the tickets they showed up and used the tickets and then you had the free areas about half the crowd that was there and they have said you know we can't really tell you what the number is because well they could just simply walk in and they were standing in the garages you know you could just walk up and stand on the third level of of a garage that we parked in or other places and they had stands set up purposely built for spectators as sort of a gift to detroit as a thank you for letting us use your city streets and you know i know that and they should be they're very proud of the fact that and this is how you make these work that no businesses had to close that's rarely the case that businesses can continue to operate and then reap the benefits of extra traffic coming through downtown. And and I agree with the fact that, you know, at Belle Isle, people came for the race and then they went back home. Whereas here, you're already, this is the advantage to street events, whether it's St. Pete, Long Beach, anywhere else. You're going to park somewhere downtown. You're going to have to walk just a little bit, but you can walk, but you're not taking another shuttle bus to get there. And then after the race, you're at least going to go have dinner Or maybe you're going to go shop if you come there for Friday practice and do something else. You're going to spend money somewhere else downtown, and that's the economic impact that it has. Uh, It was a good event, in my opinion. And I I know the drivers get really frustrated. And uh, let's face it, they are in an individual sport. So I've seen some comments about why so much criticism, why are they so unhappy. That's kind of the nature of a racing driver. Whereas if you're a football player, you it's been drilled into you since you were six years old. It's about the team. Now, I know football players, 
you know, especially at a skilled position. We always joke about wide receivers being divas to some extent. They're more me-oriented. But generally speaking, team sport athletes are always looking out for the greater good. If you're a golfer, if you're a boxer, if you're a race car driver, it's, yes, I know it's a team sport, especially in racing more than those other sports, but it's still the driver that gets blamed or praised. So I think that's just kind of in your mentality, you know, back to, I got to beat my teammate, those kind of things. So you're always looking out for number one. And if you're worried about how it's going to impact you, then you tend to be a little bit more opinionated on how things work. But generally speaking, most, not all, but most came away feeling yes. Okay. With some tweaks And they've already said that we really can't expand the track. That was one of them. That's just too short of a track for these cars. I would say it's not ideal, but it can work. If it is a good event, then I feel like you can make it work as long as the race is entertaining. And I think it was. And it got a nice television rating. So it's going to be here to stay for a while. That's great because this is a big market that you'd like to have. So a couple things out of that. Uh, first of all, you know, the football players, they show up and they'll play on a field. And assuming the field is, you know, in playable conditions, not soggy, not muddy, but they they play on a field that is 100, 100 yards long. And it's the same dimension, whether it's Giant Stadium or Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. And, you know, a basketball court is the basketball court, whether you're in Los Angeles or you're Miami. The difference here, and the reason they're complaining to some degree, is very much like the golfers when they show up at a course that, you know, is either too short, too long, too easy, too difficult. You know, the courses change, and they're not the same from year to year even. So the the playing surface, you know, encourages uh opinions if you will so so that's that's part of it and we see golf tournaments you know you'll see a golf tournament where where the par is is leading this leading the the leaderboard is atop the leaderboard and then you'll see one where it's you know minus 29 is on top the leaderboard and they have issues with both of those it's either too easy or too difficult and so that's kind of where these drivers are coming from they want opportunities not necessarily yes they want to showcase their own skills but they want the opportunity to you know beat the opponent and if there's only two passing zones well then that limits the number of chances they have to to excel so i understand why the drivers you know are critical at first i thought the track rubbered up pretty well uh i think uh i think they can make the breaking zone as i mentioned in turn three a much better experience repave uh some of that area for better grip and that will make that that better and i think drivers now know there's some places uh, going into turn nine where uh, Pato Award crashed. I think that becomes a new place to pass that they wouldn't have expected. I wouldn't have either going in. But I think also that just just the overall think that they'll have over the next you know 12 months will lead to better opportunities and a better a better race situation in, in 2023. The guy who's really got a question how this event goes is Nick Yeoman. Uh, my goodness, if you listen to the open of this show on IndyCar Radio Network, I don't know how he has any voice left calling turn three. He is screaming at turn three for most of the race as guys, you know, that was the one really good place to pass. So 
Nick Yeoman got a workout, and he'll probably uh, either you know have to save his voice for next year or ask for reassignment because they need to <laughs> give him a break. You know, here's another thing to note that this was pointed out. Maybe Tony DeZeno pointed this out on on Twitter Friday night or Saturday, and it was essentially amongst all of the criticisms uh, from the drivers about, you know, all the red flags and practice. And I think we had more in the first two practices. We had well over half of what we had had all season coming up in, in practices, something like two-thirds of that a number. So, okay, you got that going on, but give credit where it's due. How often do we come to a street race, especially a first-time street race, where we're not even ready to practice when it's time for the first practice because they're still building the track or there's something going wrong? Uh, almost all street races seem to have a red flag at some point because of a track issue. We yes. did not have that this weekend. So it just, you know, who's organizing this? Yes. Penske Entertainment, Penske Corp is organizing this, and they had things really buttoned up, as far as I know. Things went seamlessly. There wasn't a grandstand that wasn't built when things were starting. They were ready to go, and I didn't notice anything out of the ordinary throughout the weekend, so that's good. All right, let's talk about the race. We'll talk about Alex Pelot's really dominant weekend that is now multiple weekends on. That and more in your comments coming up on Trackside, 93.5107.5 The Fan. This is Alex Palou, and you're listening to Trackside. So let's talk about Alex Pelot, who led, what, about three-fourths of the race, gave it up uh, for pit stop sequences, gave it up very briefly for what we soon learned was a bit of a mechanical issue, a scare with a gearbox problem, Control-Alt-Delete, uh, gets it back pretty soon after that. This guy is on a roll, and I think he might be pretty difficult to beat coming down the stretch up 51 points. Oh, I think so, too. I did I did a little searching over the, you know, over the Monday period yesterday to start to get a perspective on how dominant this has been. I mean, you think about it. He he's won Renus VK slippage on pit road from being undefeated since the end of April. I mean, I mean, you can say, well, he didn't win the poll for the GMR Grand Prix, but he won that race. He won the poll at Indianapolis. He, he drove from 27th to fourth in the Indy 500. And honestly, I don't know if he would have won it because, you know, a lot of factors, Heck, a lot of red flags involved. I mean, you don't know whether he's first or second on the final restart, which makes a difference, and we might still get into some of that later on in this show. But, uh, you know, he really has dominated, and he dominated Detroit, honestly. He led, I think, 74 laps. His average starting position is under four, number 4.0. His average finishing position is under 4.0. And if you look back at the last 10 champions – they're twice that both numbers with only a couple exceptions. So this is a, this is a big advantage. 51 points. It's more than one race. He's going to a couple tracks where he's got a lot of success. Uh, he's ran well at middle at road America. He's run well at mid Ohio. And obviously last year he kicked everyone at, at, at Monterey. So that's still to come. The guy's in pretty good shape for uh, only being seven races into the season. And the Ganassi cars in general, this is the second straight race. I, I know they didn't win the Indy 500, but 
what were they all in the top seven of the Indy 500 and, and might have had the best cars. Palo was the one that had things impact him. But now they are one, two, four in the championship with their three full-time cars. So they've got some things figured out, uh, to put it quite mildly, on every type of track so far. So let me ask you this, and I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it just because we're in a public public forum here. Is there any possibility in your mind that Alex Pillow could stay with that team in 2024, or is he 100% locked down with Errol McLaren? Well, it'd be only an opinion because I don't know. I've not seen the contract, but my belief is he is 100% locked in with Errol McLaren. But since I haven't seen it, I will always say there's a chance, but it's 1%. I, uh, I agree. Will be shocked. I think it's done. It's been done, and that is one of the reasons why Pelot. He he might have three straight championships. Think about this. He competed last year and still sort of stayed in the mix while his world was crumbling around him, and he was left by himself within that team. Remember last year, Pato Award at Barber talking about how difficult it was when you're fighting your team. That's not fighting your team. You want to see fighting your team. It's what Alex Pillow did last year. He was persona non grata. I don't think anyone wanted, even the other drivers. Just Dixon said this publicly. This is not the way you handle it. They were disappointed in him, and I suspect they were cordial, but I didn't see a lot of conversation there for a couple of weeks, and it it took a while for that to thaw, so that has to make things difficult. Well, he, he, you know, aside from that, that one day last year when we were on the show and all of a sudden everything started breaking about Alex Polo going to Errol McLaren and then Ganassi saying what it said and, you know, the unraveling of the moment. Aside from that moment, he has handled himself so well. You know, he has really been a pro. Uh, he continues to be a pro. And from a cockpit standpoint, he's just he's been so efficient, so fast, so on point with his driving. I mean, I can't even think of many opportunities where the car were was sideways, where he looked out of control, where he was in a tough moment. I mean, he over overshot turn three uh, late in the race uh on sunday and and there was you know chaos then behind him because everybody's scrambling as the leaders kind of kind of scrambles but aside from that moment i can't think of hardly any other moment where he wasn't in total control and by the way the tuesday uh disputed tweets and press releases I don't believe were generated by Alex Pillow. He was doing what he was advised by the people who should know better told him to do. You trust your management to make the best decisions. And he trusted them and it went that way. So that wasn't really, I mean, yes, I know he's an adult. He's responsible for things, but you're right. Every time he's been in the heat of the moment, asked to comment on things, he has handled things professionally it does make you wonder, though. Things are going so great. That team is so strong. Why would you want to leave it? Well, you want, might want to leave it because they offered you eight times the salary. Uh, because at the time when this was 
being talked about, they're throwing out a number, which is probably two to four million dollars and an opportunity, at least a sliver of a chance to get to Formula One because he, he he's from Europe. I get it. He, he'd like to live closer to home if possible. If not, he's quite content here and would like like we all would to make several times uh, more in salary than when we're making. Now, maybe that similar offer would come, but I don't see much of a way that Ganassi is going to be able to match the salary that McLaren. There are so many stickers on that McLaren car, and that's one of the reasons why I give them a chance of adding a fourth car next year, even though they don't have room. I don't know where they're going to put it because they're out of space, even for a third car. But I get the impression they are turning down sponsors and they just need space on cars. And add that and the fact that someone like Marcus Erickson is potentially available, then that might be enough to add a fourth car. I I don't rate that super high because I think that Andretti might be in line first and ready to pull the trigger on that if Ganassi doesn't get, get it done. I'm sure that Chip still has first option, but... You know, I know we're venturing off on tangents, but top two in the championship are with the strongest team going right now. Uh, we say that understanding that Team Penske just won the biggest race in the world and has been really strong this year as well. But top two on Chip Ganassi Racing might not be back next year. One, almost certainly not. And the other seems pretty 50-50 at this point. Uh, agreed. And and um, Zach Brown had a press conference uh, late in the going at the Indy 500, and he he basically confirmed we got enough enough sponsor lined up right now to run that fourth car. He said, right now we could do it, but it's it's getting you know the space and you know you think about you know you wonder well how is that possible? Come on, you could just you know, these cars aren't very big. Well, it's the staffing that you need. It's the tools and the parts and the pieces. You know, it's just like when you take your luggage and you show up with f- five bags and you got a single hotel room and and there's only so many places to put the luggage and it's, it's on the floor and I mean that's the kind of situation they'd be facing in their current workspace on the northwest side of Indianapolis, but they're moving into uh, the Andretti workshop in 2025. That's a very large facility by current standards. We're about to get uh, a wave of, of shops that are much bigger, but uh, that shop is, is big enough for you know the multiple programs that uh, that the Andretti Group has under un- under its you know its wing Indy Indy Next uh, Formula E all the different programs that they do plus running Jared Andretti's car you know plus storage in the back so you know it's a much bigger situation Jack, Zach just seemed to indicate it could be 2025 before that fourth car comes on board but as you say if uh, Marcus Erickson is available there aren't many Marcus Ericsons out there I think he's been quietly the the really strong non-Alex Pillow driver in this paddock. Could they do something like what Ganassi did when they went to four cars a little over a decade ago and they split it two and two? If they're already a little bit overcrowded with three, might they keep two in their current shop for a year and then outsource, hopefully nearby, but there's always space available in Brownsburg. There are plenty of shops available in Brownsburg that you could rent for a year 
And I think Zach Brown likes to compete. He's not driving anymore other than in the occasional vintage race. I think he really enjoys digging at Chip Ganassi. And it might be enough motivation to take the guy who finished first and second in the last two Indy 500s and as a championship contender from him. Those comments oh, at that press conference were, uh, it, it's Formula One-like. It's drive to survive-like. We're not used to that in the IndyCar world. And, you know, the, did everyone see the Greg Doyle story in the star? It, it was, you know, it was almost as if uh, it was written by the paddock. You know how this goes. And, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was really critical of Zach Brown. And the way he's doing things is not the way we do things in IndyCar. And and Greg doesn't know the sport, you know. And I think I saw uh, Jenna Fryer of the Associated Press, you know, respond something along the lines of a guy who watches is here two days a year. His opinion doesn't matter that much. I, I feel strongly, and I don't really know Greg at all. I've met him once or twice. I don't think he formed this opinion. He was convinced by someone this is a good opinion to have. And I know there are many in the paddock, including owners, who do not like the way things have gone since Zach Brown has come in. So this was someone finding a journalist that would do their bidding for them. And Greg did it for them. Yeah, and and I think Greg is good enough that he takes what he hears one place and then digs digs till he finds the bottom of the story and and really the premise of the article if you didn't see it was that arrow mclaren had made this big you know pronouncement about a year ago that they were going to whitestown and building a new facility and now they are no longer building that facility and they are moving into the andretti shop which is you know less business for a booming part of our community in boone county so I, I see why I wrote it, and you're right. I think it speaks as much from the paddock as it does from from himself. Now, the paddock doesn't, frankly, care much about that. They don't like that they're being outbid for crew members. Sure, sure. That they're, they're losing drivers is one thing, but even more so that they are losing mechanics and engineers to McLaren or being forced to give them significant raises – because McLaren has the budget to do that. And that is not going over well, and they'd like him to go away. <laughs> well, if Team Penske was based in Indianapolis, they would have had Team Penske would be doing some of that here. But Team Penske's in North Carolina. And I'm not saying they're outbidding him, but they would pay a higher price for those crew members. They would probably take more just out of the natural flow. I mean, yeah. would you rather work for Team Penske? Of course you would. All right, we'll get into some other things. Back to Detroit, and any questions, they're welcome at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. It's Trackside. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. Let's sneak in a couple of Twitter questions, comments in this segment. We'll go in reverse order. Lee 50S, uh, on the Detroit radio broadcast, someone made reference to Pato Award in his signature move, quote, signature move, that eventually found him in the wall. Do you have an opinion on Pato's driving of late? And do you think is being, he is being too aggressive? I think he's being aggressive. I don't, I don't know about too aggressive. I think in the Detroit race, one, you've got to be aggressive in places. Two, he was about to fall a lap down, and he's fighting to keep that possibility of getting back into the fray. So I don't think he's too aggressive there. The Long Beach, you know, incident is is one that would come up. He got aggressive with Scott Dixon 
and he got aggressive. I don't know if that was with Kyle Kirkwood or Kirkwood was just in the middle of it, the one that sent Pato uh, spinning. So that was interesting. And then an Indy, I mean, I think an Indy, you'd, you know, if you're Pato, you probably have to have to make hay where you where you can. And, you know, it's late in the race, and it was kind of the Allen Sir Jr. Emerson Fittipaldi moment where the car on the inside just kind of ran out of room and spun into the third turn wall. So, look, I think he's aggressive. I think that's what we like about him. Too aggressive? I wouldn't say that. I don't know what the signature move is, though. It, it probably was making reference to crashing or something, I'm going to guess is what someone was saying a signature move of uh, making a move that ends up in the wall. I think this was a different circumstance. You're, you're right. He, and I think he explained it well in the interview I had with him that it was desperation time. I was either going to now, now was he already down a lap or about no. he was Almost. still at the end of the lead lap. Okay. I thought he was trying to avoid going two laps down, but either way he's trying to save his race because you could make a case Having just pitted, you know, maybe even one lap down, he thought he could still save his race, but whatever. He's just trying to save uh, what happened because of the issue on the pit stand. One, I don't think I'm qualified to say if a racing driver is being too aggressive, not ever having driven. Two, as just someone watching, I guess I will offer an opinion because we're asked to do that. That's why he's where he's at, because he is aggressive. You can't be timid. You, you've got to go for it. And it is a fine line, but I mean, maybe it will make it difficult for him to win a championship. You could are the other way if he the other way if he tried to change his style. He's not what he was, so he needs to continue to race the way he raced to get a significant contract with McLaren to raise all the way up to IndyCar and be a championship contender and a multi race winner. Um, but it's tough. You got to pick your spots and. To say that he is just overly aggressive, someone that's overly aggressive probably throws it into the wall at the end of the Indy 500 last year. So he is certainly capable of making the right decision at the right time. Agreed. I agree with that. Uh, I think, you know, situations determine every decision. And the only one I'm, I'm question is, is Long Beach, but those things happen. And I think he just simply said, I mean, if you're talking about the Dixon one, he thinks that was the right move. The Kirkwood thing, he said, I made a mistake there. So he knew that pretty quickly that I tried to get the car stopped and, and I couldn't. It, it happened. Nate asked, what are your thoughts on the restarts? Do you think the line should be moved in the future or stay as it is? Seemed to me that the leader could get a massive jump based on the placing of the restart line. Oh, I, I, I think, you know, you're going to learn from from this one and – are we talking about Indy or Detroit? Uh, I thought we were – I was answering the question based on Detroit, but – I think he's talking about Indy. I'm sorry. I think he's talking about Detroit, whereas you know most of the field is – because they were restarting at the exit of two there. So most of the field is still coming around, and they're going to be really spread out. But a theory is you get them started early and hopefully they're spread out before they get to that hairpin. If you start them too late, they're trying to go two by two and the outside of the two is probably going to end up in the fence. So you'd like to have them sorted, but there are different opinions on that with people that have driven cars say you need to start them early. Others say you need to start them late. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I'm prepared to, to say. I think a car owner 
as long as he wasn't leading, would say, uh, start them early. Well, even if they were starting from the front, you'd want to start them early to spread them out a little bit. Um, I'd have to go back and look at these restarts, but if the leader is going right at the exit and getting the jump on second, then, yeah, I would agree that's a little bit early. You need the least to get the first 8-10 back on the main straightaway before they are accelerating. But I think they were allowed to start going a little bit at the exit there. So something that, that could be revisited moving further. More of your questions coming up. Hour number two, Trackside, 93.5, The Fan. This is my new friend, Flava Flay from Public Enemy. Welcome yeah. to IndyCar. And this is my new friend, Kevin Lee in the place to be because he's rocking from the bottom to the T.O.P. right here at the Grand Prix. (laughs) (laughs) Hour number two, trackside, 93.5107.5, the fan. Oh, we need to play the whole thing because there was a moment of silence. (laughs) I just simply said, I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure where we go from here. There's no follow-up, but I did have a follow-up and we chatted for a while and it was wonderful. We need Public Enemy rejoiner music, though, not Michael Jackson. Yeah, right. Maybe we don't have the rights to Public Enemy. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Eddie's a bit young. He may be learning who Public Enemy is. At Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan, uh, if you have something for us, recapping the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix, weekend off, Road America is coming up weekend after next, so... I saw a lot of people a little bit worn out this past weekend, and we saw a difficult track for drivers. But you saw some, um, you saw, I think, what in other sports you might say unforced errors at times, hitting people from behind, crashing under caution. Uh, you had at least one that we noticed the, the Pottle Award incident on pit lane issue there. And that was one of the things that I wondered about going in just mistakes. Everybody is worn out after the Indy 500. That's kind of the nature of the beast. You're kind of running on adrenaline when it comes to the Indy 500, everyone in the sport, it's the most important three weeks of the year. It honestly is how this business survives. The Indy 500 dictates and allows you to compete the rest of the year. This is where everyone has to make it out of the Indy 500. And then you finish it, and it doesn't end for many on Sunday night. Uh, There's the banquet on Monday, which is a long, long banquet. And for the teams, you know, for example, Marcus Erickson finished second in the Indy 500. That car raced this weekend. They had to rebuild and take that car and put it back into road course configuration. And a few other teams would have done the same. And that is a relatively quick turnaround. Luckily it's a short trip up to Detroit, but there's not a lot of time off. Maybe they got Monday off, maybe, but they're working Tuesday, Wednesday. So it's um, not a shocker that that might contribute to just not being quite as sharp as you would hope to be. Well, and think too about the the teams that had to you know rebuild and repair cars from the Indy Five Hundred, and there is yeah. no small crash at the speedway uh, when you hit the wall. Or there are, I suppose, degrees of it, but there are relatively no small crashes. And and while I don't know if Pato Awards car, his chassis was actually the same one on Sunday that raced and crashed in Turn Three at Indy, but 
that crew still had to get that car essentially back in working shape because they need those cars. You know, this, this is not a sport like NASCAR where there are eight others, maybe not of the same workmanship and, you know, drivers have their favorite cars, but they're, you know, these cars are still needed. And so that's why a Marcus Erickson car that runs at Indy could run the next week at Detroit is because, you know, they don't have a lot left standing around. And, and so, um, yeah, it's it's hard on everybody, and you can imagine how hard it was this last week on Joseph Newgarden. Uh, now he's not complaining, but he did have the banquet and all the well. You know, after the race, you know, a lot of those drivers were back in their motor homes or relaxing with friends, and Joseph was talking about the Indy Five Hundred for probably four hours after the race and went to a party with his with his guys and gals and then monday was the focus of attention at a photo shoot at eight in the morning on the front straightaway and you know smiling for three hours i mean granted he's smiling for a long time but you get the point and then he flew to new york on tuesday and um it has been nonstop for for him and then his team essentially worked through the week to get ready to get the car you know, back to Detroit. Everybody went back to North Carolina to work. And, the, you know, there was some long days there. Their shop's not based in Indianapolis. So get everything back, redo it, send it to Detroit. I saw Joseph for the first time Friday. There's a media bullpen that they organize and bring in as many drivers as they can. And it was a new venue. Uh, so it was challenging to find things. And, and he missed it because he, couldn't find it, but he did show and he showed up a little bit late. I think we saw him about noon. And by that time, most of the media was gone. So Dave Burns in our group was the one covering him. So Dave got a nice one-on-one with Joseph because there was only one or two other reporters there. And he looked whipped. His eyes looked like slits. They were basically closed. Uh, I've never seen Joseph looking as worn out as he was when I saw him. And I, I didn't, even bother him there. I didn't need anything from him because I wasn't in his section that weekend. I just kind of stood off to the side. I just finished talking to one of my drivers, but he looked worn out. Saw him Saturday, and he looked a lot better. He looked back to normal on Saturday, and I think Diff and Hinch and I were standing out right at the uh, pit exit where the drivers would walk through from the paddock. And we stopped him and talked to him for five or six minutes, and he was you know, obviously in a great mood. But he – and I think – Lee mentioned this on the broadcast that he admits he's a bit of an introvert and that is challenging for him. He is somewhat performing when he is doing all of this. He's great at it, but he likes to just kind of be on his own. So he said, this has been really tough on me. And he said this in some other public settings, this has been really tough on me being on all this time for multiple days in a row. And He's someone that, and I think a lot of them are like this, they've got a process. And I, I think some of us think that, well, you've already learned how to race cars. And yes, you look at some video and you're maybe spending some time in the simulator to do what you can. But there is a process that is beyond me of, of how they prepare for a weekend. And he did not get to go through that process that he normally does for a weekend. So he felt like already he was a bit off his game coming in to, to this weekend, but he was feeling better as the weekend went along. And I didn't see him after the race, but, you know, qualifying in the top six, 
uh, and then I think still getting a top 10 out of it. I'm going to guess he feels pretty decent about that. There was more available, so I'm sure he's frustrated. He got hip-checked a little bit at one point. I think they were a little slow on one of the pit stops. So a top five was probably available, but just to score some points and survive this weekend, I would say is a really big win in Joseph's mind. Yeah, you, you've heard the story from Joseph before, but after a race weekend, any race weekend where he has to be on, he goes home and and I don't know that this is the case now that he's a father, but because the demands are different, I mean, your attention is needed, but he basically turns off the lights and shuts down for about 24 hours and, and doesn't talk to people, doesn't want to think about talking to people and just basically recharges uh, based on, on being by himself. Again, fatherhood has, has surely changed that routine, but you know, even in the, in the hundred days to Indy program, I don't remember if this was the third one, I believe it is, he's sitting on the couch with the race broadcast on the television and his iPad or small computer, and he is taking notes. And that's the process, one aspect of the process that he didn't get to do this week, I'm sure. He did not go back and watch the Indy 500 or the Detroit race, I guess is a better example, in, or both and really detail what happened last year, what happened last week, where can we make improvements, where can I make improvements, and he just didn't have that kind of time. Again, he's not complaining, nor should he, but there's a reason why there basically been one top five finish in the race immediately after the Indy 500 since Juan Montoya in 2000. That's an incredible stat. Yeah, I saw that graphic that we had of all of the winners back-to-back after the Indy 500, and no one in the current environment. And Juan Pablo Montoya, even though that was 2000, was not at all the same as any other winners in the last 25 years. I don't imagine, yes, I'm sure there was a media tour, but remember, he was racing in a different series. That was a one-off. Yeah. So... The IRL was not sending one Montoya around on their media tour. They were probably begging him to do things, but he was, no, I'm a cart driver. I'm going to go to their media tour. And they made use of him. And it's also just a different environment. You know, there weren't podcasts at the time. There weren't as many places that you could be. You're doing radio interviews and TV interviews and newspaper interviews, and that's the end of it. And then after that, what, Ari, Ari won uh, the 500 in Texas in back-to-back weekends that was disputed for a little while, whether he won the second half of that. So, yes, it's challenging, and it's it's difficult to do, and it's probably going to be unlikely that it happens anytime soon, winning both. Well, and in Ari's case, there were more days in between. He won the Indy 500 on Tuesday, yeah. and so it was not the next, the ensuing weekend, but the one after that. Uh, but, yeah, it's it just it's, takes its toll. I can speak from experience. I've been on that media tour and was only the one helping get driver from point one to point two at New York. And New York is not easy. You know, you're looking, you know, you're waiting on your driver. You've hired a driver for the day, but he's still got to negotiate traffic. You're standing outside, you're waiting, you're looking, you're anticipating, you're running late for the next next setting. You're trying to make it on time and it's all day and you have got to be on. And for lack of a better phrase, kind of sweet talk, the host, uh, you want to, you know, show your personality and and uh, give each outlet media wise something. And each outlet has got 
eight to 10 people standing there wanting to get a picture with you and maybe sign something, you know, these are associates and it's just, uh, it's a grind. Um, let's get back to the box score again and talk about Will Power, who was able to, to salvage a second place finish and used a different strategy starting on the primaries, raced up to the lead for a little bit when Palo had the gearbox issue. Uh, that's one of those that he probably needed as we look at the championship. It's, I think we're starting to eliminate some people from the championship, but where's Will at at this point? I'm not ready to eliminate him uh, at he, this point, and one of the reasons is because of what he did on Sunday. Yeah, I think Will, you know, Will's one of these drivers. We say it a lot. We've said it a lot on this show over the years. Will's a guy who can get hot and could could rattle off you know, a lot of wins here pretty quickly. You know, he's eighth in the standings at this point, you know, but he's 101 points behind oh, wow. already, already. That's two races. So he's going to have to get hot. And the problem here, in spite of, you know, all this competition is I don't expect, and I don't think you do as either, we don't expect Alex Pelot to make a load of mistakes the rest of the way. He's not an inexperienced risk-taking driver. Uh, he's not somebody who's going to – and I mean that in the most flattering of ways. He's a professional who makes calculated decisions. He's very Scott Dixon-like. He's the closest thing I think we have at this point to Scott Dixon in terms of the way he handles moments and always seems to – end up on the good side of things, even though he's had his trouble at Indy. But you think even about the last two Indy 500s, the timing catches him out when he's coming to pit road in in 2022. By the way, he was in Joseph Newgarden commit lane, <laughs> if we can call it that. He was coming to pit lane and a caution comes out. He's committed. And then, you know, Renus VK spins in front of him on pit road this year. So the two years... And what does he pass? 50-some cars in those two races after those moments? So I don't expect him to make any mistakes the rest of the way, or very few the rest of the way. What's scary is that he's not been an awesome qualifier. He's been okay, but he had one pole coming into this season. He's won pole in two of the last three races. Uh Street course, the 500, a little different story, but qualified third on the road course in Indianapolis, qualified second at Barber, qualified fourth in the street race at Long Beach, seventh on the Oval at Texas, seventh to start the season at, at St. Petersburg. So, yeah, he's consistent. And he hasn't won a lot of races. I mean, he's won, what, five now? But, six. you know, six, I guess. So that's a fair amount over the last three years. But Joseph won five last year. And we've had a lot of years where, you know, winning winning three or more or more than three is is pretty common for the series champion. So, you know, Pelo, he won the three in his championship, se championship season, easy for me to say. But he's not a guy that's just going to go out and, you know, win seven or eight races, or at least that hasn't been his, his MO so far. But he's going to finish in the top five in, in these races. He's like Dixon. In that respect, if if it's a fifth place car that he has that day, he'll finish fifth. But more often, he's going to be on the podium. How about power? Back to him. He's still in play. And that seventh place start this weekend, 
is his best start of the season. Yeah. The all-time winner in polls has not made a Firestone Fast Six yet this year. Uh, Joseph Newgarden hadn't until Detroit. Yeah, that's that's really remarkable. In fact, of all the things that are remarkable about this series this year, it's I think that one stands out most to me. He hadn't even been close to a poll. Not, you know, you would kind of expect him at some point to to rattle off one or two or six. He did that kind of last year. Late in the year, he got hot and and won a bunch because we didn't think he could get to the to the Mario record. And then what he went for the last eight, and um, so he got hot late, but. Yeah, he hadn't even been close this year. Well, Powers, he's there. Uh, Rosenquist gets a podium. I think that was one of the questions I had, too, regarding the little dust-up with uh, Rossi and Rossi's comments afterwards, essentially, that you know we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. Let me see if I can find that. Yeah, from Ryan Patempa. I sent some tension with Rossi post-race about his contact with Rosenquist. Guy can't seem to catch a break on the track between drivers on his team. Do you think this tension will resolve itself, or will this affect Rossi's on-track performance? I think Rossi handled this extremely well. Sure, I agree. I agree. I thought, And I thought, really, Rosenquist's answer was the best one. He said, you know, Rossi – well, he didn't call him Rossi, but he, meaning Rossi – may have raced me a little hard on entry and I may have raced him a little hard on exit. And, and I think that was a fair assumption. I thought it was, it was aggressive on both parties, but it's late in the race and they're going for a position on the podium perhaps. And it's every man for himself down there in turn three. So I thought that was the best explanation for it that I saw was Alex probably a ticked off. Of course he was, but I don't think it was because it was his teammate necessarily. I think he'd have been irritated with anybody at that point. He he may have been ticked off. He, I suspect he was because you're a competitor, but I also don't think he was just biting his tongue and, you know, playing PR. I think it was an honest answer. It was, yeah, we'll talk about it in that, no, I don't think I'm going to make a big deal about it, but we are teammates and we want to make sure that we're approaching these things the best way we can as teammates. So we'll talk about it. And after we talk about it, we might decide, yeah, there's nothing you can do. This is this is what it is. When you're racing, like Felix said, next to each other, you are going to have dust-ups unless one is willing to concede, unless it's Formula One and there are orders as to who has preferential treatment and that does not happen in IndyCar. So when you have good teammates, you're going to have to get used to it because it's going to be even tougher next year if and when Alex Pillow joins that team. You're going to have three drivers. That's why, sidebar, why Rosenquist in some way fits really well. And I'm not saying he concedes and he's willing. The shows he's not willing to concede. But sometimes it's best not to have three all fighting for the championship. You want good drivers but maybe it's good if one is eighth instead of being one, two, three, that when it comes down to it at the end of the year, maybe he is supporting the teammate more than just outright fighting for it. I'll stand by it. I think in that moment, Rossi was miffed. I think he was hot, and I thought he handled it very well, both from a team standpoint and just the way you should okay. handle it. Okay. Um, but I think he was he was miffed. Um, he may have may have settled. 
shortly thereafter, but I, he was too dismissive with the answer for me to think he wasn't just ticked off a little bit. But he said, ultimately, uh, we kind of went from 13th to 5th and 5th to 1st or 5th to 2nd. And then we fell back probably to the water that the water level we probably were going to be at. But I think he was he was a little bit sour to be roughed up. And I think we'll hear that in the podcast that he and Hinch do. Well, that still works out for a pretty decent day for him going from 13th to 5th. So he's 6th in points and still in that group that I would consider – in in play i guess i got eight right now even though where are we at on rounds of 17 i lose track because we don't talk about points at all for the 500 how many events have we had now you got seven seven and if you're going to say eight you i guess you include power but that yeah that's probably the cutoff the top eight are probably in play i don't see Herta or rosenquist or rojan or the three or kirkwood are all right there behind uh that cutoff line that you just drew i don't see any of those making a big run the interesting thing is and we might get to this later but rojan probably should be higher up he you know the saint pete incident with with mclaughlin uh, he had the Texas race that he's probably going to finish in the top five or six, and he has the the dust up, um, you know. And then he's had a couple crashes the last two weeks, or he should be up in that maybe Rossi McLaughlin Power uh, point position in six, seven, or eight. And now he's back in a position where he might be last year that was so disappointing. If he doesn't get things turned around, he just needs some finishes. At this point, he's got the two second place finishes, two other races where he could have maybe won races, but his third best result is just 14th. And that's because of attrition. That's a race he crashed in, finished 14th at Texas, and that's his next best result. The others this year, 18th, crashed at St. Pete. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. He does have one. Uh, he finished 11th at, at the GP at Indy. So 11th is his third best result. Then 14th at Texas, and then you got the 30th, the 500, and then the uh, the result this weekend of 24th. Back up into this result. So we talked about Rossi uh, a little bit. Dixon does what Dixon does. Fourth, I think fourth in the championship again now. So a long way back. But he's still there. And what gives me more optimism about Dixon is that the Ganassi cars are really, really good. Yeah. So it won't surprise me that he wins a, a multiple races still moving forward real soon. So you talk about, you know, Grosjean and having his third best finish being 11th. I believe Polo and Erickson both have seven top 10 finishes uh, to start the season. So there's the difference in what. You know, having those those uh, crashes yep. can do for you. I mean, or how much they hurt. Uh, so, you know, Erickson and Polo, they just keep rattling off top tens. You know, eighth I think is about the worst for Polo, and Erickson has just been a been a machine of of tops. You know, top ten performances as well. So good on both of them, and that's why there's separation at this point. Kirkwood made a nice move forward, if you look at the box score, to go from 12th to 6th, but it was anything but that. He essentially went from last up to 6th. That was impressive and had the fastest lap of the race. 
Yeah, next to last technically because Eilat crashed behind <laughs> him. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you saw a couple incidents in that turn three, one in the sports car race that got good publicity where a car goes over the other one and kind of the same crash a little differently. But but you saw, um, you know, Eilat's car kind of ride up on the back of, of Kirkwood and really, I'm surprised it didn't hurt more than just the wing. I guess he got up high enough that it just took out the wing assembly. But, you know, that that was really a great comeback. And maybe aside from Pelot, the drive, well, power as well. But those three were in kind of drive of the day performance uh, over everyone else. Someone asked, Andrew said, uh, asked, why did Eilat retire? It looked to me like he just needed a new front wing and he could resume his race. Was there undisclosed suspension damage? Well, one possibility could be they may not have brought the car back to the pit lane. Sometimes in street races, they really just can't do that. They get you off the track and then you are left there. So that's a possibility. It's a long um, way back. It's a long yeah. way back from turn three. You don't realize the distance that it would take to get you to pit road. And by the way, I'm not sure there was a direct path other than just following the racetrack, which would have been a pretty slow process in a, in a tow truck. Yeah. And, and the other would be that there probably was suspension damage. That was a pretty good hit. So I'd be shocked if that was just simply uh, a front wing because he got up in the air and when he came down, it certainly was going to bend something. So you're talking multiple laps down. If they could have gotten it back and fixed it, they probably would have. But, you know, if it's difficult, if you have to stay yellow for two more laps, and we all know how fans react when IndyCar doesn't get back to green uh, most quickly, they get screamed at on social media. So that unfortunately impacts someone. And if you're the person, the people making that decision – they took a look. If they take a look at that car and say, "Okay, you've already going to you're going to lose multiple laps because they've gone by you, and we've got to tow you back," then you've got to change the front wing. Then you've got to replace at least one piece of suspension. You're ten laps down. This is not worth holding up the race for two more laps to bring you back. Sorry, bad luck for you. Don't run over the guy in front of you the next time. Is essentially how that works. Yep. Yep. And. Uh... Sometimes, as, as Hinch learned, they can leave you out in the middle of nowhere with no way to get yep. back. And I think I think ultimately that would have been a problem just logistically getting the car back from turn three. Yeah, at least at least Callum got a ride back and didn't have to sit out there the, the entire race. Uh, McLaughlin, not super happy after starting second and finished seventh. He's not happy with Grosjean, as he said, not caring at all where I was at and the apex i would feel the same way if it was my driver in scott mclaughlin's situation if my driver is ramon Grosjean, i might say hey that's the nature of the track and why do i have to slow down to let him by if i am in front exiting the pits that would be a good question for race control what is expected of you in that certain circumstance you must stay driver's right exiting the pits but you're trying to make that corner. You're trying to stay in front of that driver. Ideally, you're fully cleared. So I don't know how that would be ruled. Uh, there was not a penalty, but there's often not going to be a penalty when a driver is... Well, no, he wasn't taken out of the race. He was taken out of the race later. So there was not a penalty. So they didn't deem anything wrong with that. 
Well, and there was no contact there, correct? It was just it was just uh, slowed him up a little bit. So no contact in that turn. They would they just it forced didn't it just force McLaughlin to slow? I can't recall if they made light contact. Obviously you did not end anything for them, but there doesn't have to be contact for a blocking right, penalty to right. be called. So I think it's one of the as they say, one of them racing deals that, you know, maybe say ideally Grosjean getting him by, but you know, you have to let somebody buy. Uh, he was most of the way forward. So that's, in some ways, just a nature of one of the things we feared. We never saw the pit lane chaos happen because we never had everyone pitting under yellow. That's what saved it. It was quite fortunate that there were so many different strategies. Our producers always ask the pit reporters and the analysts, you know, when do we, what are the strategies? When can we take breaks? Because we prefer not to be in break when the leaders are pitting and we all kind of, I don't know, there might be people pitting most every lap between about lap two to about lap 70. Because we, we thought there was a chance someone in the back might decide if they don't want to, the alternates at all, might just decide if it stayed green, which it did not. So we, we don't know how that would have worked. But if it somehow stayed green at the start, uh, I had some telling me we might come in just to get off and then hope there's a caution a few laps later, others will come in and get off the reds, and then we'll go from 27th up to you know maybe 15th or something like that. So the point was, we thought we could see stop at all times and avoided the chaos. So we're going to have that to look forward to year two. What happens if all the leaders in those double lanes are exiting at the same time? I fear it may not go great. Yeah, I was going to save that topic for the next segment. So uh, I agree. It was the one thing we didn't see in this race that I expected. And that was a full field yellow flag pit stop and the exit that would have ensued. And I was very much looking forward to that because I wanted to see how they sort themselves out. But uh, it didn't happen. One thing I did love about that, if you were someone that ever has grid access before the race, it was awesome. Because pit lane is normally long and super crowded at most places. It's difficult to see anyone, see who's there, see the people in the car like to see if you're a fan. Well, they're double file. It was hugely wide. There were a lot of people down there, but there was a lot of space to navigate. And you could kind of see everything and see everyone. And it was obviously half the distance. So it was great from, from a standpoint. If you're a fan that gets access before uh, that was awesome. All right, we'll continue to look and see what we missed going to some that had less than ideal days in the box score and more of your questions and comments at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan on Trackside. Hi, this is Pato Award, and you're listening to Trackside. Ooh, I don't know if I've heard the Pato rejoiner. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, next week, are we on a different – is that next week where schedules start to change? Let's peek into the calendar just I, I don't think so. Bit. Next week is Tuesday. It's it's a July oh, fourth weekend. We have we have okay, so July fifth, so the mid Ohio race we're gonna be on Wednesday. So may that because I mean, life revolves around our little rim we're much appreciative. And then the following week is baseball's all star game on Tuesday the eleventh. So we will be on the twelfth. Oh what I did know it's it's next week. 
there is a possibility we only have one hour if the Stanley Cup final is still going because uh, radio station is airing the NHL playoffs. So, but I believe seven o'clock will still get started, and we'll find out whether we're on until nine or until eight next week. We'll be able to talk about Road America, uh, and we'll talk about that before we're done here tonight. Rest of the box score outside the top ten. Who do we need to speak on? Well, I think we can we can mention that Colton Herta's weekend was was probably one of his least favorite of his IndyCar Series career. He did qualify twenty fourth, and I say that in kind of quote marks because he he basically was at the back up until race time. You know, he was in the back in a practice session, in the back of didn't get much time on the racetrack. Qualified twenty fourth, he raced up to eleventh, and probably. You know, probably thinks that's about as good as I could have done. It was maybe a couple higher, and he had multiple wing damages that he was surviving through, and then yeah, right, right. basically lost half of it and just kind of soldiered home. So that's pretty remarkable that after he lost a spot or two there, he was able to maintain that position. So two weeks in a row, Devlin DeFrancesco has his best career results, so making some progress there, 13th in the 500, 12th. In this race, how about this? Simon Pagino finishes 13th, starts 8th. Those are both by far best results. Well, not by far on the finish, but by far the best starting position. 14th was the best before this, and he had finished 15th at Long Beach. So the 13th was the best finish that he's had this season. What are they in points? Simon is 25th oh. in points. 25th. Is that Thank you. <laughs> That's what I, 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 I jotted down doing my notes today. I'm going to have to go back and double-check my work there. And Elio is 22nd. I mean, they're they're both in danger of of being outside the uh, the leader circle program. I mean, that's unbelievable. This is year two of a two year or year two of a two car team with experienced drivers, excellent drivers, and they're nowhere. It's it's un, it's really one of the stories of the season. You think about that. That's true. That is. Um potentially about a million dollars or so. And there are asterisks involved, so it's not simply the top 22, and we never really know 22 um, because that's not really published. It's an agreement between the teams and IndyCar. But the way I understand it to be is uh, the fourth Ganassi car is not eligible. You had to be grandfathered in, so it's a three-car maximum. So I think only Andretti because they've been four for a long time, is able to be involved with four cars. I think the Ganassi is capped at three, so that's one where you might move up, but that's only one. So you need to be 23rd uh, at this point, and and they are 25th in the championship. Uh, Not too far out of that, but yeah, that's been less than ideal. And then if you look at Simon's races, you're going to, okay, I kind of see what happened. St. Pete, he's collecting in that opening crash. Uh, they had a problem on the first pit stop at Long Beach. But, boy, the others uh, at the Indy GP, he was just outside the top 10 when they lost drive, exiting the final stop. Remember when he came to a stop that I still don't know exactly what that was, but they don't think it was 
a pit stop issue. It was some sort of mechanical failure with the wheel nut or something like this. In the 500, he was running 12th when he was hit from behind by McLaughlin on on a checkup and finishes back there. But you, what a miserable season that has been. Uh, still more than than half to go on that front, but take baby steps, and that's yeah. the best that they've had so far in qualifying. So that was good. Yeah, I mean, let's let just give it some perspective here. The three Rahal drivers that we've talked about have struggled. That has been a talking point for the whole season. I hate that we have to talk about it like that, but all three Rahal drivers have scored more points than Simon Pagano. Alec, uh, uh, Augustine Canapino has more points than Simon Pagano, and Connor Daly has had his struggles. Marcus Armstrong's not, he's missed two races and is ahead of both. Meyer Shank racing cars. So, I mean, it's just, it has been so disappointing. And, you know, the team, we, we all have such high regard for, for the team and for these drivers. And it just speaks to how difficult it has been to score points for whatever reason. And there are, there are reasons in all these races, but the fact, you know, you, you basically live by your point place in the point standings for better or worse. And that, that speaks to how difficult it's been. And how difficult it is to compete because if you, you may not even be getting worse, but everyone else is always trying to get better. Even though the Penskis and Ganassis are way ahead of everyone, Penskis are trying to beat the Ganassis, the the Penskis, they're both trying to hold off Errol McLaren and Andretti, who's better this year, and on down the line, that makes it tough. And it was another challenging weekend for the Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan cars. They did not have the pace that they wanted to have. Uh, the Ed Carpenter racing cars weren't particularly quick. VK was – what happened to VK? Uh, he was running eighth or so, and he ended up 18th. And I don't I recall. He was not in my section, and watching the race back, I missed that. Agree. I, I, so I don't know either. He just kind of disappeared from, from the frame. I don't know that if he maybe kind of seems like he had a contact with somebody and then that dropped him to kind of the rear of the field. Uh, but I can't speak to it 100%. There's probably a decent chance that he had contact with someone yeah. in this race. Let's go to the old press release. I worked pretty hard. It was in the top 10 quite a bit on the last restart. I was hit from behind and lost momentum. I had to go on the defense there. And got too many marbles on my tires, then I couldn't turn anymore. It was tough. Struggled to keep my car on the track, which I did, but it was only enough for P18. More in the car, very bummed. I learned a lot, ready to go to Road America. So there you go. He finishes 18th. Connor finished 15th. Another solid day for Augustine Canapino. I would say really, really good to finish 14th. He gets graded on a curve. We thought this might be more of a level playing field because it was new for everyone, but still. He doesn't have a lot of street course experience, and those that have more experience in these cars are going to seemingly figure it out quicker than he would. So that was a solid result for him. He did get a blocking penalty, uh, which cost him the spot. It wasn't a, you know, go to the rear of the field. It was a give back the position, as I recall. Uh, that was, it was yeah. that all that happened. Yeah, yield position. But uh, it was an interesting call. I, I wasn't sure that that that's the call. I mean, I just didn't see it, but uh, the the booth announcers uh, you said, yeah, that's blocking. So there you go. The Ray Hall drivers were all kind of there. Uh, 16th, 16th for Luna Harvey. 
Uh, Graham Ray Hall was probably going to be in the same category. Just under caution, I thought that was a really reflective, honest interview from Graham. Just, yeah, our cars have not been great, but I have not been good either, and I need a real reset at this point. And that's where I kind of wondered the mental stuff going on. It was a doubly challenging month of May. Let's think about Graham's week of the 500. One, he thinks he's out of the race, goes through that, then he's back in. And every driver has a long list of appearances and responsibilities. Graham Rahal basically ducked. So he still fulfilled all of his partners with Rahal, Letterman, Lanigan and those events. And I ran across him at some of these dinners. And he's going to the Cusick Motorsports events as well. So he was doubling up. So that's one of those where I wonder that, Eddie, you've got to be 100%. And if any bit off, it, it leads to some mistakes like crashing under. And then the, uh, the car won't start for him at the start of the Indy 500. That just had to be a crushing, a crushing emotional yeah. blow. I yeah, mean, that's just entire race, two laps down. You get back to one lap down, but yeah, that does not add to your mental well-being at that point. And by the way, uh, I've seen other people crash under caution at times. When you get all those, that's what I ask him off air. I said, do you think it was the marbles that you just got out there? And he said, I don't know. I, I'm not sure at this point. Mostly he just didn't want to point blame at anyone other than himself because you're responsible for that, but it, it does happen. Uh, Benjamin Peterson, I think, was on the way to a better day before he was coming behind and couldn't get it turned and ran into the back of Ray Hall and lost a couple of spots there. One week, big difference for the Foyt cars. They really tried something on Friday, and they were three and four seconds off in that first practice. Got back into a relative pace after that going back. And I get it. You're trying to be aggressive because where they've been – has not been good enough, so we'll try something. It's difficult to do, though, when there's basically two practice sessions before you get to qualifying, and some would say there wasn't even two practice sessions because there just were not clean laps. Oh, if you were watching Peacock when I threw out the suggestion that, hey, maybe we split that up into two groups for practices, and, and it's still an hour and 15, but it's you know cut into half to – 45 minutes a piece. I know that's not an hour 15, so it'd have to be, you know, whatever, 37 minutes a piece to do that. Without me asking drivers, when I debrief with them as we do after that first practice, I had a half a dozen drivers say, we need to split this into two groups because this is kind of pointless. So maybe in a tight track like that might be something that is considered moving forward. One of the things I thought about is why instead of dividing it in half, which clearly disadvantages the first group because the amount of rubber is yeah. not put down, yeah. why don't you divide it in fourths and say first group gets 18 minutes, then you go to a second group, 18 minutes, and, and so forth. And then group A runs in positions mm -hmm. one and three, group B runs in positions two and four. And so that you – you have it at different points and you yeah. basically have a chance to reset a little bit and, and then have another part of the session to go. I might even say, and somebody does a double, whoever gets to finish the session has to start the session when it is most worthless. And they're probably just going to sit there 
but that would even it out a little bit in that regard. So that's a discussion as we get to something like that next year. All right, we'll see what we missed coming up in a moment on Trackside. Hi, this is Simon Pagano, and you're listening to Trackside. Final segment, weekend off for IndyCar racing. Kurt, I am always interested in watching more racing on a weekend off. I'll watch Le Mans this weekend. There's a, a lot of teams and drivers, you know, the European uh, teams, I'll admit I won't know much about, but I just like to have it on. But this year, there are a lot of people. I should have put together a list, but we've got what I know. Pagano is over there. Bourdais is over there. What other IndyCar drivers do we have doing this race? Is it just Pagano? It might be, but uh, I know Roger Penske's there, so we'll have yeah. uh, Penske representation. And Ganassi. Uh, so th- there are some familiar teams. So this is going to be cool to watch this weekend. Motor Trend has the American broadcast. So I am lucky enough to have that, I think, on my YouTube TV. So I'll look for that. But I also think there's a subscription for like five bucks. Uh, you may have seen on social media, our buddies Lee Diffie and Calvin Fish are over there. They're not on that broadcast, though. So you probably need a VPN or something. It's not available in America to be able to see what they're they're doing this weekend. Uh, and then Road America coming up. And, oh, first, we have testing, including at Road America, which I think applies more because they have repaved. And several cars are on track tomorrow. Yeah, I think there are nine tomorrow and a couple more on Thursday. And we'll see some testing down at Sebring. Toby Sowery is going to get his IndyCar Series first test. And uh, Linus Lundquist, I believe, also testing down there on Thursday. He's in an Ed Carpenter car. Sowery is in a Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan car. And uh, it's probably going to be quicker at Road America. But there's one theory, in part from when Jackson and some other uh, road dindy drivers were there that it might be slicker even in the dry that maybe it's not as grippy as like when Watkins Glen was repaved a few years ago but it's probably going to be faster but in the wet if it somehow rains uh uh-oh they couldn't even turn laps in a drizzle uh, and had to just essentially park so stand by we'll talk more about that next week thanks for joining us we'll see you next Tuesday night at seven for Kurt and Eddie I'm Kevin it's 93.5 107.5 the fan